Hey everybody, welcome back to Jersey for the Sopranos podcast. This is episode five, Contradictions. The thing about us wise guys, the hustle never ends. That quote was spoken by Tony Soprano in one of the most pivotal moments of this entire series, both from a creative standpoint and from a perception of the show by the public at large standpoint. We're going to get into it. This classic episode was written by James Manos Jr. and David Chase and directed by Alan Coulter. Guys, this is uh, this is a big one here. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we're at college. This is I'm, the first big like monolith episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that we got to college. In fact, I think unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, we mentioned college in some way or another in every single episode we recorded. If not by name, we alluded to it constantly. That's pretty fascinating. We're going to delve into why college is kind of looked at as such a, a critical episode for the show in many respects. And we're going to talk about why it was possibly James... We can only speculate, but we're going to talk about why it was James Gandolfini's favorite episode of the show when he was asked during... I think there was some kind of interview during season six. Uh, It remained his favorite episode. Um, I'm going to start off the conversation. Uh, Normally I get into plot A, plot B, initial... Well, you know what? Okay, let's do initial gut reactions first, and then I'm going to tell you the first note I wrote. Paul, what's your gut reaction to this to to college? Uh, it's another episode, maybe referring to the title of our discussion here, full of these great contradictions. There's very funny moments, as usual. There's really chilling moments, and some very tense and frightening ones. David Chase referred to this episode when it worked best as a film noir, mm. and it really um, fits that mold. Um, it's also, I think, one of the first shots across the bow, though not the last, but certainly one of the best, if not the best, where one of the things that Chase said about The Sopranos, even though there's a long arc narrative, is that he always wanted each episode to be its own in its properties and its approach and the style. So that even though generally episodes are just an hour, you almost get the sense that you've watched something full like a feature film with its own arc its own narrative its own structure and college really asserts itself on that level in being a pretty isolated story really honing in um other than the pilot this is the longest episode that the sopranos has done so far Mm. and yet we're not we're not pulling out into a wide shot we're digging into really two storylines um mostly with what we call two-hander scenes just two people um, that's not typical yeah. um, for The Sopranos. They usually do get crowded, particularly with gangster scenes. Um, so they're doing something different here. And again, just the execution, like the last episode, is so spot on. Um, it also really takes, I'd say, all the characters to another place as we dig into them and we spend some more time with them. Jordan? Uh, jumping off of what Paul said, um, I think college stands apart from so many other Sopranos episodes because it's entirely a self-contained piece. That's pretty rare. It's pretty rare in television in general, in in series television. But um, I was looking at it objectively, like, could someone watch this episode not knowing anything about The Sopranos and still get this? Yes. It, It actually just plays like its own film. It has its own beginning, middle, and end. It's cathartic unto itself. Yes, there are, of course, references to things that have happened in other episodes, but... You can just sit down to watch college and watch nothing else about The Sopranos and have this really meaningful emotional experience. 
it has a nice light touch when it needs to, but those chase sequences are really compelling, and the predator-prey relationship between Tony and quote-unquote uh, Fred Peterson, Frank Peterson? Fred Peterson. Fred, Fred, I'm sorry, I totally butchered his, his alter ego. Frederick Peters, that's it. Yeah, yeah, Frederick Peters. Frederick Peters. Uh, really compelling, chilling stuff, and um, yeah, just a, just a great episode. And then Paul, uh, Paul made reference to a David Chase quote in one of our early episodes, in that David Chase feels that The Sopranos could be uh, spoken of as a show about people who have sold their souls to the devil but don't want to deal with the consequences. Well, these are the consequences, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. Carmela can't make up for it, and... Um, when I used to watch college or think about college, I used to think about how uncomfortable those scenes with Carmela and Father Phil made me, but now I see how important they are and how much they support the A-plot. Mm. Um, so it's a great episode. It really is. It's masterfully acted, masterfully written. The directing is so good. Uh, Alan Coulter just destroys it, and in, in, in I mean that in the best possible way. Uh, the, emotional res- m- the emotional beats hit, the suspense hits, the... It just works on it, it. Fires on every cylinder. In a lot of ways, this could be a Sopranos pilot if if they wanted to go this route. This story of a gangster taking his daughter to college. And I, now I'm going to get into my first thing I it wrote. It has short story elements. It really oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. The gangster taking his daughter up to Maine is. I mean, it, just even that premise without all the other stuff onto it is is interesting. Um, but I wrote this episode is the Sopranos. This is what the show is. It's about these life and death stakes of tony's lifestyle and his business intersecting in interesting and contradictory ways with the family mm-hmm. uh so good there's so much to tackle here uh and where to even begin in this episode d- well that's My just God. it there's so much going on uh on the surface there are two plots it's what's going on at home and it's what's going on in the college trip but there's so much else um uh, as far as where to start Let's start with, as far as I'm concerned, the first bomb drop. And that is Meadow and Tony in the car. And she, you know, they're, they're, we get in the first scene. They have a very touching scene outside of uh, whatever college they Bates were at. Bates is the first one. Bates is the first one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they're just kind of talking about it and shooting the shit. And Meadow starts kind of prying a little bit into Tony's background. Some stuff she didn't know maybe about his education, but you get the sense that she's harboring some curiosity and questions. Something is weighing on her. And then the bomb is dropped in the car. Dad, are you in the mafia? And his reaction is he just, I mean, that's the last thing in the world Tony was expecting. (laughs) Sure. Uh, And uh, yeah, so let's start there. Let's start with that scene in the car and what our initial feelings are on all of this. Uh, First of all, it's it's a tribute to Alan Coulter that he visually works it out perfectly because you see Meadow make the decision. You see Mm. Meadow decide whether they're going to listen to the radio or chit-chat about Maine um, (laughs) and the weather or what Tony thinks of XYZ College. She makes a decision to ask him this bigger question. This is also largely an episode about what we call, I guess, false faces. Um, And it's important, again, we, we mentioned how it could be a standalone, but in the last episode, Meadow's approach to this very question was... Not only not openly questioning, it was cynical. She mm. looked at AJ and said, you're so naive sometimes. It was as if she had already made peace with the fact that the dad's a gangster. Yeah. So well, it's she's the... not asking the question because she doesn't know. I think we're talking about confession in this episode and hearing confession. And I think Meadow wants to hear Tony 
say it. Because what we're talking about is their relationship yes, and the particular power of it. And part of the complication in Tony's life, much like the fact that he has a smart wife, is that he's got a smart daughter. She's like him. She's shrewd and she's clever. The fact that she's smart is the only reason they're visiting these prestigious colleges anyway, mm. which is why he gets into trouble in the first place. And it's a perfect setup for what you talked about, about how this is what The Sopranos is, trying to balance these things out. As we talked about in the last episode, sorry to say this, if Tony was on a trip and he had to murder some guy and he had to somehow deal with AJ, that episode would be 10 minutes long. AJ, here's a porn mag and here's some beers. I'm going to be back in <laughs> an hour. Over. That doesn't work with Meadow. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing the difficulty of wearing these false faces in different scenarios. Oof. Yeah. Jordan, what, how about you? Thoughts on that? I'm just going to try to commit myself to just answering your question because if I start waxing philosophical about all the different aspects of this episode, the episode the episode that we're recording right now will be four hours long. <laughs> so you asked me what I specifically think about the scene in the car with Meadow, Dad, or you and the Mafia. Our focus for this episode is contradiction. And David Chase, you alluded to this in an earlier episode, Chris, said these characters are hard to write for because they're lying 90% of the time. Yeah. Tony is lying almost 100% of the time in college. There's yeah. almost nothing he says that is true. Dad, are you in the mafia? His response couldn't be more indirect. It's a stereotype. It's offensive. Uh, there's uh, there's no mafia, he says there at one no point. Mafia. There yeah, is yeah. no mafia. And then eventually, some of my money comes from illegal gambling. Or whatever. And then the heartbreaker, a line from Dr. Melfi. How does that make you feel? Yeah. He's using what he's learning in therapy to deflect and to lie to his own child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the heartbreaker, which Paul has already gotten to, is that she already knows. She knows the truth. She knows the information. And the look of disappointment on her face couldn't be more clear. She just wants her father to have an honest moment with her. And she keeps using little tidbits about herself as as bait. Hey, Dad, I did I did speed. Um, you know, uh, they say Bates is like the most money you'll ever pay for contraception. <laughs> you know, these little, this little bit of bait to just try to get an honest moment with him. She's trying so hard. She already knows. She already knows everything about her dad. She's seen it all on the internet. She's kept her open eyes in that household. Um, and he refuses to have an honest moment with her and maybe can't. This is a fun theoretical. Let's just say that Tony's response was dead honest and he just came right out with it. Would Meadow, would that change anything for Meadow? If, 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 A, if he had been honest, and B, to have everything she kind of already knows confirmed? It's a very good question. Um, I think that, to piggyback on what Jordan said, people are lying so much that I think it's hard to tell the full truth in any scenario um, as... And I, I want to, we'll, we'll have plenty to say about Father Phil, but Meadow in that same scene that you asked about also says to the dad, she says to Tony, don't start mealy-mouthing. Mm. Um, so he's, he's deflecting. Um, I don't know that it would make much difference for Meadow. Um, I think that, again, such a brilliant aspect of this plot um, is what do you do after? What do you do after you've confessed? Even if you sort of half-heartedly confessed. Because he tells her... I think, in essence, he even if he sidles up to it, he's telling her the truth. But what? where's the drama going to go from here? There's an even more direct confrontation with his gangsterism. I'm on this trip, and I got to kill this guy. That's good. That's good writing. You set it up in this scenario where it's like, oh, well, where else is it going to go? Oh, it's going to go to an even crazier place. Um, so, mm. I mean, I think that... But it's a good question. Um, I, I think that 
we're talking about a connection here um, that's difficult, and it is tenuous. Mm. Meadow is about to go through this rite of passage. Is she going away to college? Is she going far away? Carmela does not want her on this Berkeley kick, which would send her, presumably, across the country to California. Um, And we didn't discuss this when we watched the first episode, but we got those ducks. Yes. And they come back in this episode. In a big way. And um, the, the strain on Tony's family, but also that imagery of the rite of passage of the ducks learning to fly and leaving the nest is um, front and center. So, If Tony just turned to Meadow in that car and said, yes, I'm in the mafia, and moreover, I'm, I'm basically the head of a mob family, it certainly wouldn't surprise Meadow to know that. We suspect she already knows pretty much everything. It would profoundly change their relationship in that it would be more honest and the two of them would be closer. It would change the show. Mm. Um, he would have a more earnest father-daughter relationship with Meadow. I feel a lot of Tony's parenting is role-play. I don't see a lot of authentic parenting going on when I see Tony's, at least his early scenes with his kids. He's trying to be what he thinks a, a dad should be. Yes, for sure. And we've discussed this on the show before, but, you know, the the father is almost the false face for Tony and the gangster is the real face. That's not always true, and that is too broad a brush to paint Tony with. Yeah. Obviously, he's a much more complicated character, but... You see him, James Gandolfini is just a monster actor, and you see him really, he almost says it. He, he's, he's testing how much he can tell her. You know, I, uh, some of my money comes from illegal gambling. You know, it's with a certain resignation of like, he, give, he gives her the look like, you know. Come on, mm. you know. Um, I, unfortunately, the conversation does not go that way. They do not end up having a closer relationship. Meadow will try to push Tony away a lot. Uh, in subsequent seasons. Um, I wish he had told her the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, me too. So they're on this trip. Uh, they're going on to the next school. They stop at a gas station. Tony makes a couple of very funny phone calls. Uh, and yet again, just kind of um, reminding the audience and, and uh, just sort of reminding the audience that Tony's perpetual struggles with the women in his life are always looming there. I mean, this episode really is, uh, this phone call moment puts him with Carmelo, with Irina, and then with, you know, Meadow. He just has the three very important yeah. women in his life. He's got his mistress, his wife, and his daughter all within a span of 30 seconds. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> it, it's a lot. And he sees a guy at the gas station. This guy, as we come to know, is uh, a former gangster named Febby Petrullio. We find that out in a conversation with Chris. Um, thinking about those scenes where Tony calls back to Chris, I'm immediately, uh, there's a lot of deeper levels to dive into here, but I'm immediately, uh, I want to talk for a second about the visual style of this episode, because it is so distinct, talking about this being its own movie. Oh, yes. This is a noir. David Chase was correct in, in, in that assessment, um, because there's so many moments like this. I mean, the shot of the phone booth with a spotlight on it, out while in the pouring rain. I mean, that could have been shot in, you know, James Cagney's era. Like that is something that is like right out of the 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 40s and the 50s film sure. noir and German expressionism. These shots we get later in the episode of Tony just silhouette on the street with these brash lights that are just coming from nowhere. Uh, the see, I, I that that shot of Febby coming out on the porch um, after he hears a dog barking. And there's just this harsh light 
illuminating the house in a weird way. It's just this shit is. There's nothing else like this anywhere else in the show. And then, and then, of course, the the whole device of them hunting each other down and doing detective work and popping into these phone booths and checking down the names. And this is a noir. This is a. This is a. In a way, it's like a detective story. Yeah, I wrote down uh, tension, fog, and handheld shots. Yeah. During a lot of that sequence, and this is another episode like the last one where um, it's a tribute to the. The overall, the writing, the the acting, and the production value. Um, there's a wonderful shot at the end of an empty hallway. <laughs> it's, it reminds me of like shots from Taxi Driver. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's definitely noirish, and it underlines that mood. Um, the lightning, the thunder. It's also dramatic. There's also um, there's a biblical element to this episode. Oh, not so just because time. of Father Phil, but Father Phil has this this great line that is off quoted. Um, by many people in the clergy, just that, you know, the, the whole world is God's house. He mm. sees everything. This episode opens with the sound of these big bells. Oh, yes. And Tony looking up at the sky, something he will do two more times in this episode of just kind of being like, where am I? What's going on? As if something, some force outside of himself sits in judgment. We have more biblical imagery or references, or, or it could just, it could fall under the umbrella of film noir as well. The world in New Jersey is in a constant storm. It's just mm. raining in Jersey the entire episode, daytime, yeah. nighttime. Everyone has the flu. Carmela, Dr. Melfi, you know, mm. uh, very strange circumstances. The priest comes in out of the storm. Uh, in Maine, essentially America's, you know, kind of vacation land, things are bright and cheerful and happy, but the noir characters from the rain scene are lurking around. Yeah. The two mobsters and... Just to, to hone in on, on Febby Petrullio for a second, again, uh, wonderful performance by that actor. Yeah, um, he, he made the most of it, certainly. I thought he was terrific. And um, just to see Tony lumbering through, like, the main wilderness, <laughs> uh, going to, like, these cutesy souvenir-type shops, the hardware store, the travel agency. The cigar hanging out uh, of his mouth. Yeah, just totally out of place. Yeah. Um, you know... It was beautiful. The, the the symbolism of it is is really profound. And as I was looking at Febby Petrullio, this is exactly what I thought. He doesn't wear glasses. You <laughs> oh, think he wow. does? Yeah, there you go. It's abs- Look at that hairstyle and tell me you don't think of Superman. That hair is super deliberate. The glasses are super deliberate. They're going for a Clark Kent type of thing. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, and they've combined it with a guy that looks physically like a mobster. And they've given him clothes that are ill-fitting and like too main the guy is trying too hard to be frederick peters and (laughs) i think it's just such a violation of tony's code that someone would give up um the gangster wise guy life and trade it in for a little slice of american pie he can't stand it and it must be ripped from the world yeah and a lot of interesting stuff here we don't get much of this character in as far as you know compared to tony obviously he's just kind of a one episode character here but Febby is another person wearing a face to himself and to the multitudes, uh, and you illustrated that very well in in your in your discussion there. But uh, here's a question: I wonder how much Febby's wife or family, any of this pe- any of the people in his life, know about. Well, I guess okay. So supposedly he goes around talking about his, you know, lecturing at colleges, and there are mobsters, former mobsters out there that do that. I, th- I think most of Michael Francis. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but he was the he's one of the wealthiest, youngest mob. He was one of the wealthiest mobsters to find success at such a young age. He ran a massive, um, he ran a massive 
gas scam in Long Island. He was, uh, oh. you know, he, he basically was able to pocket all the government tax money on gas stations, like 100 gas stations in Long Island. And he is a former mob guy that got out and goes around to colleges kind of lecturing. And so I always, when I think of Febby, I always think of Michael Franzese because <laughs> it's that same vibe. But uh, yeah, very interesting character, very unique looking. I really love that you 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 word it like that, uh, Jordan. Um, let's move for a second here into what's going on back on the home front. Uh, first thing is, as far as first go, this is a character that's going to be with us in the Sopranos universe for a while. This is Father Phil. The character was in the pilot, but played by a different actor and not really featured. Um, but this actor, Paul Schulz, uh, one thing I immediately to picked up on is the chemistry that Paul Schulz has with Edie Falco. And these two have worked together a lot. I think they, be, I think um, they, they were together on Oz. I think he's, I haven't seen Nurse Jackie, but I think he's on Nurse Jackie. They clearly like each other in real life and feel like they have some kind of chemistry and, and, and work together well. Um, but uh, he's, he's great. He, you immediately um, get, the right vibes off of him when he gets in the house. Uh, you you know quickly who this guy is. Oh yeah, another yeah. deeply uncool character, by <laughs> the way. Yes. Oh, I wrote. He, he is... says "word up" at one point. Okay, <laughs> the word up. Um, yeah, I, I I wrote something here about just he he's like an intellectual, but like also to- a total dope. You know, he's 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 a dork. He's a dorky priest. Um, but uh, Father I, Phil is, yeah, yeah. I think it was, I believe it's Jean Ralphio on Parks and Recreation. Um, I can quote scripture and literature as well. Um, <laughs> who described his sister Mona Lisa as the worst. That's what I think every time Father Phil comes on. He is the he is worst. The worst. Um, but interestingly, I remember actually watching this episode with you guys. And Jordan and I both were, I think, audibly like... Ugh, scoffing when he would speak. But there is something to this because it, as we frame this, this deeply uncool character um, is one of many who's wearing a false face. Yes. He's just not good at it. He can't... Um, I mean, he's good at it to a degree that he can enunciate what I call this pablum, kind of this unsatisfactory drivel, given the moral difficulties and contradictions Mm. of this episode and this world. Um, But when it's time to hit the music, when it's time to do this, when he's going to like lean in and kiss the mobster's wife or not, he literally can't stomach it. Mm. Um, He runs and pukes. Um, So I think that, and we'll come to the Hawthorne quote, but I think part of what this episode is about is no matter how good you actually are at it, the moment will come when you get bewildered as to which is true. Tony's moment just kind of comes after he has worked out some of the plot details. Um, and Father Phil doesn't do good with any of it. Um, the last scene that he has with Carmela is one in which Art Carmela expertly puts her mask back on. Mm. And Phil is still fumbling around. Yeah. It was one of the greatest temptations ever for him, Paul. I know. <laughs> he, just, he had a Jones for her baked ZD and he couldn't help himself. Is is Father Phil a schnorra? Is he a guy who shows up in time for free grub? Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 There are, is more illumination on this character in a very good way coming up in this season. But uh, for now, um, yeah. I, Chris I, yeah. Or, or Paul, both of you. 
had he been able to stomach it, do we think we would have gotten Father Phil and Carmela and Flagrante Delicto? Oof. It's a great question. Um, I think it could be. because I, I, I say yes, but go ahead. I'll tell you why. Well, and what we're seeing is Carmela in that deeply vulnerable place. Yeah. But um, what we're also seeing, I think, is Father Phil in some way showing her that this thing has no longevity, doesn't have any legs, and it reiterates to her, again, why she has to go back to the false face that can be presented when you're at full tilt. Sure. Um, I do think she's she's definitely tempted. In fact, earlier in this, there's one beat where Father Phil is ready to leave. Mm. She gets him to stay. Yeah, it's not just Why that he's just got here. He is a schnorra, but it's not <laughs> just him imposing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Takes oh, yeah. two to tango, oh, as yeah. Tony says in this episode. So he, she is in such a vul- to answer your question, Jordan. She is in such a vulnerable state here, and. I don't... Do do I think this would turn into a long, ongoing affair? No. I think, oddly enough, had that kiss happened and had whatever happened after the kiss happened, I think the morning after would have played out rather similarly. Yeah, that's the thing, Chris. I think think they do have sex in this episode. Yeah. Right? Right. In in a way? Not like... Not physically, but I think mentally they both go there. There is, um, it's very overt in the episode, this is not really interpretation at all, um, but there is this suggestion that there is the date that they are having, that is the dinner, that is the drinks, uh, they watch a movie that is, mm-hmm. Im- you know, imminently paralleling their own relationships, remains of the day, about two people who cannot be together, one due to his duty and one due to her position, um... And then, you know, they start to talk about confession. There is the uh, taking out of this portable sacrament kit, which is kind of hilarious. Oh, yeah. Um, But that almost reminded me of like, oh, uh, I happen to have this condom or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) The the whole act of confession with their backs pressed against each other is almost like a kind of a foreplay. There's an erotic shot of him placing the wafer down on her tongue. With the flames licking the Yeah, And she is kneeling down before him. It's kind of a reference to oral sex, sort of. They even cuddle afterwards like literally cuddle like she is cuddled up with him yeah that's not like interpretive they're snuggling they're sleeping with each other asleep sleeping sort of um and um in the morning after he's gotten sick or whatever there is that morning after shame so it seems like everything happened but the sex yeah it's kind of like they had sex i mean as far as tony's probably concerned they may as well have well and in in that (laughs) in that space that jordan is talking about that is precisely where Tony finds himself at the end of the episode. I don't know what to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's great. And I think, Jordan, you might have mentioned this. We had a conversation about this pre-recording. Some of the cuts between oh, yeah. these storylines are really wonderful. It might have mm. even been the confession scene when they hug it out at the end. And I think it cuts directly to Meadow, who's had too much to drink, yes. talking to the college kids. She gets up, Dad, and I'm like, I agree with Meadow. This is gross. Um, I was just like, Ugh. you know, um, Father Phil and his dumb bullshit. Anyway, um, but that's me. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to Maine, um, this hunt is on, and I, I'm not sure if this, how much, del, how much this was deliberate 
but the size of this guy's gun is it's noticeably strange. I just just something I took note of. Um, but he's kind of hunting them down outside the hotel room. Um, here's a question. Just uh, again, a lot of this is, seems to be kind of fun theorizing here, but this episode offers so many interesting decisions on the part of its contradictory characters. Why doesn't he do it here? Why doesn't he pull the trigger on Tony when he has his chance? The, mm. the show almost makes you think that, oh, well, he kind of missed his moment because an old couple is kind of futzing with their keys as they're trying to get into their own room. But he has ample time before that to just shoot Tony. I'll refer to another scene. He has a daughter who also has called out Daddy to tuck her into bed because she woke up at the wrong time while he was in the hot mm. tub with his wife. He's conflicted because he sees another man like himself. That's what makes this episode so compelling is that, um, you know, Fabian Petrullio could be Tony Soprano. Well, uh, and, if Tony would give up his own life and try to live it square, it would be that. And that's also what makes this show so interesting because it fucks with your sympathies, right? That shows to me that despite this guy's past, there is some semblance of a conscience there. Yeah. This guy, Febby, is the, for all intents and purposes, he's the villain of the episode. It's like, right. oh, he's a rat in this culture? Fuck you. Go kill him, Tony. But he did the right thing. Like, snitching on the mob is a good thing to do. These guys are patently awful. Sure, it's the laws of society versus the code of, of the mob. Right. You know, yeah. But as people you know being immersed in this world you're like oh well i mean this guy's a rat fuck this guy yeah i mean nobody who touches the world of the sopranos comes away clean i think that's the deal with the devil um and i think yeah the the imagery i also i remember i think i wrote down the same thing that there's a complication here that he's taking his little girl to college and we have the imagery with uh febby's little daughter um though he's annoyed with her um in that sequence, and he sees the old couple, um, but he also pulls it out at the opportune time, which is what any Sopranos character does to elicit sympathy. Doesn't work. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I think of uh, uh, Peters is such a fascinating figure, given that element. He was... The reason that he made the deal was because he was uh, selling heroin, and he was caught. Let's put a pin in that, <laughs> and just remember, um, selling heroin, probably not a good idea. <laughs> not a good idea. And we'll come back to it on The Sopranos. Um, I'm sure we were going to come to this, but we got to talk about the busts. Yes, I was just going to bring. I was just going to go there. So, any again, one of these moments. This to me, the busts represents one of these little moments that differentiates The Sopranos from everything else. Because any show could have used any device could be employed from a plot perspective to reveal to Tony that this is the guy he's looking for. But the Sopranos had the creativity <laughs> to use a device where this guy creates these busts with a mouth that is too big. And, of course, that reveals the rat whose mouth is too big. Like, who the fuck comes up with that? That's ins- I Hello, rat. Oh, oh, it's so good. It's, uh, it's perfectly done. It's, it's, and it's also it's, it's pretty eerie. So it works in with the noir vibe. Another thing about it, I just want to put it in there. Um, what Chris says as the, I think the sort of, the little guidance system for it at the beginning is, uh, it was supposed to be a bust of, uh, I believe, Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Italian-American hero. The iconography of the gangster and the brilliant performer. Um, and Chris says, supposed to be Frank? I thought it was Shaquille. Motherfuckers got to work a little bit on lips. 
um, I have the script for college as it happens, and the way that it's written in the script, um, you'll forgive me, this is not probably a politically correct term, but when Tony sees the bust with the lips that are too big, the lips are, quote, vaguely negroid, end quote. That's the way it's written in the script. So the other thing that we're seeing is like a, a bit of a curious um, but kind of sophisticated racism in these <laughs> jokes um, that's really fun. Uh, so, and yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's something that really sets The Sopranos apart. Not that it has imagery, everything has that, um, but that it's so playful and fun and clever, if not always subtle. Sometimes it's subtle, but sometimes these images are in your face, and that's what makes them so um, fun and memorable. Yeah. I did have a moment when Tony is hunting uh, Febby through this episode where I thought, wow, Tony is a really effective predator. He really is. And I was looking back, I don't want to look at the whole series, of course, just looking back on the previous four episodes, Tony never struggles to take someone down. Uh, if he wants to beat you, you're getting beaten. Uh, if he wants to kill you, you are getting killed. Uh, no one even, no one can even put up a fight against Tony at this point. He is just death come knocking. He really is. Let's talk about um, the big obvious moment here and what also separates this show. I mean, now in 2020, we are used to uh, protagonists committing all kinds of horror. But when this show came out, there was internal strife between the creators and HBO. HBO thought it was a death knell to have a protagonist that was a blatant, cold-blooded murderer. I don't know what they thought they were dealing with when they had a show uh, pitched to them about a guy in the mob. Yeah, come on. But this was a controversial choice at the time to have Tony on screen with his bare hands murdering a guy. Oh yeah, the, the method of murder is especially and it, important. That's, yeah. that's also too, it, this is probably with the maybe the exception of Emil Kolar in the first episode, which was just rough, but uh, this this was one of the more brutal murders in the show. Uh, but yeah, that was also, that murder was also quick, and, yeah. um, and this one needs to be done in such a way where you're literally stifling somebody. This episode is in part about hearing confessions and when do you hear too much? So it's not a mistake that the only murder is strangulation. Yeah. And it's a dirty, grisly murder. The mud. We get a shot of the mud and the gun falling into the mud, and, and Tony's spit is just flying everywhere. Uh, a couple of years later, he that might get him pinched, but, <laughs> you know, he's, he's his hands are bleeding from the wires. It's just a... It's a gross, gritty murder. And it was one of the first shows or, or movies that did strangulation correctly. A lot of times people are like, yeah, I'll hold a pillow over the guy's face for 10 seconds and that will surely kill them. Mm. That's not how long it takes to suffocate someone like that. You, mm. you have to really put some effort in, and he does. It is, it is grisly. Uh, and then, of course, we get... I can't even... I'm having trouble verbalizing exactly how I felt when this shot came but he just looked Tony after committing such an ultimate act of power and control over another human being just looked so pathetic and helpless in that shot of him staring up at the ducks um, well and again that for me was another like kind of like a somewhat something is watching you yeah you know yeah and uh, you know another he, he, just alluding to the ducks again there's going to be plenty of duck illusions uh, in the show but that little spinner wind spin 
wind spin thing with like the I'm, am i describing it right he he outside the travel office there's like this little duck pinwheel thing yes. and the wings kind of spin around in the wind and i don't know just not not by accident obviously oh no there's, there's no way not. they nothing they, is by accident yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. right another uh, interesting element too is this guy febby is a snitch to his core when he's confronting these two guys, these these two junkies, I guess we're supposed to be led to believe about pulling up alongside Tony and, and shotgun blasting him on the highway, and they are like, "Nah, fuck that." Uh, he threatens <laughs> he threatens to snitch them out. Like that is this guy's mo. So in a certain way, we know in that moment too that this is his fate. You know, this this guy is going to go down as a sure as a rat. Look at how this episode is framed. Uh, Febby is the villain in this episode, not just because he's against Tony and because he's a snitch, but because he tells the truth. Mm. Our good characters lie on this show, oh, and the shit. better liar you are, the more good you are in everyone's <laughs> eyes. Tony lies, I said at the beginning of this, almost 100% of the time in this episode. More lies are coming in what we're about to discuss next, his uh, last conversation with Meadow. Uh, Febby threatens people with the truth, and it's because this guy tells the truth that he is the villain. Wow. Right, and he'd be he'd be threatening to reveal the false face because this guy is whoever this guy is is also a volunteer fireman, but has this yeah. <laughs> this dark underbelly of addiction and I guess burning down shit like the historical house. <laughs> um, Which I guess is like that's the worst thing you can do in Maine is, is burn down a historical house or I don't know sink a pontoon boat or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to talk about some of the closing the scenes that kind of close the loops so to speak in this episode uh, one of them is the scene between tony and meadow and the net the last the latter tony meadow car scene where she really confronts him and sees the mud on his shoes and sees the cut on his hand and yeah um, more lies yeah mud on his shoes i had to go around back i left my watch in the restaurant you know yeah uh cut on your hand i cut it on the screen door dad she, she knows what's up. She might not know exactly what's up. She's putting two and two together with this stranger that he saw, some guy from the old days come calling. Yeah, takes two to tango, She uh, as uh, you, you mentioned that, um, Paul, and I, I feel for Meadow in this scene. I do. Meadow is an up or down character for me. There are very often moments in this series where I'm going to be like, man, fuck Meadow. Uh, <laughs> there's other times where... I really feel for her where she is and what she was born into and how someone of her intellect and talent um, plugs into all of it. But I really felt for her here. She is just so desperate to hear something real from her dad. And I don't know. Do you think she knows? I think she obviously knows what she's being told isn't true. Do you think she somewhere in her mind understands like that? Oh, my dad might have just killed somebody. Is that part of it for her, or is it just that he's lying? I think that, I, I mean, I do think that there's a, there's the understanding that it's that he's lying, and that as Jordan said, she's putting two and two together. Again, this is something that a, a shrewd character like Tony and like Meadow can do. I also think that much like another morning after scene, we've come to the end of the road here, and I don't think people want to hear any more confessions. Carmela doesn't want to hear it from Father Phil. Now, Meadow does want to hear the truth from her dad, but when he won't, I think she kind of makes peace with the false face. He says to her, what? Nothing. I love you. I love you too. That's it. Mm. They go back to chit-chat about the student paper. Um, so I think that part of this, part of the false face question is that everybody does it, and everybody, I think, knows 
that others are doing it. How, how do you live with it? Mm. Um, and that's Meadow, to some degree, is making peace with it. Yeah. In this sequence. And what a brilliant idea in this episode about contradictions and false faces to end up at Bowdoin, where it, which is the alma mater of Nathaniel Hawthorne. And um, Tony kind of sees that quote, and we're led yeah. to believe he... Yeah. We actually haven't actually said the quote. Sure. I don't know if people have recently watched the episode bring, or if they just want it. Bring us the, in, Jordan. The Hawthorne quote that he sees on the wall above him is... No man can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true. And those written those words are written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, who, um, by the way, also wrote The Scarlet Letter, which involves a priest uh, who has um, committed adultery with, with, of course, Hester Prynne, uh, alluding to Carmela and, and Father Phil, perhaps. But uh, moreover, evolving uh, Tony's position on maybe he has an awareness of his own contradiction of having to wear one face and constantly having to switch it and not knowing who he is. Mm. Yeah. Any thoughts on the quote and how it ties into the rest of the action we see? And, and Tony, I, I can only imagine what Tony would be thinking reading that quote. That's what's so fascinating to me is that we see not just the quote that ties in thematically to the whole episode and dare I say the whole goddamn series, but we're, we're kind of hanging on Tony's face. The college kid walks by. He's our most famous alumnus. Funny moment. But, um, you know, we also, we don't see the kid's face. We just kind of see this collegiate body walking past as we are focused on Tony's face. What must he be thinking? Well, another thing that The Sopranos will become known for over time is being able to tell stories in different ways. And the stories that they're telling are so compelling, the characters so rich, that you can have a quote on the wall kid walks by with a little notation on it and just Tony's reaction is enough to guide you because mm. we know what he's been through already um, it, I think it I think as Jordan said early on we notice that he's out of place we got the church bells we got the the Americana of the college campus Tony standing there with the cigar like alright um, <laughs> you know and he's out of place the whole episode and he sees this quote I think and, it, and again he, looking pathetic he's totally dominated in that shot mm. right he's sitting in this big hallway um, and then he's looking for all the comforts of home when he gets home he's like ah oh, finally the blessed ordinariness of things let me get the gabagool out of the fridge um, and uh, only to be only for the apple cart to be upset by Carmela's revelation about knowing um, Jennifer. And yeah, I think the Hawthorne quote applies to everybody. And But no matter how good or bad you are at wearing the mm. faces, I do think you will become bewildered at some point as to what the truth is. Sure. And on bewilderment, as relates to the truth, what's interesting too is we see Tony lying in several different ways in this episode. And one of them, I totally feel bad for the person he's lying to in the way he's obviously not giving Meadow what she needs in that moment. But I actually am kind of Team Tony on his Melfi lie because there is no way Carmela would have been chill with him having a, a woman therapist. Am I wrong there? Do you guys think... Uh, I, I like... I don't know. I, I can... I, maybe not... I, maybe I don't justify the lie, but I can see why with Tony's specific history, he would lie about Melfi being a woman. 
and why that and obviously i know why that would upset it's not healthy for his marriage to keep withholding information like that um he needs to have more honest conversations with his wife do i understand his decision to to hide the fact that melfi is a female psychiatrist uh yes of course (laughs) um but yeah i mean and that obviously upsets her to no end and rightfully so she's been lied to again by tony and with his history now has reason to believe that there's more there than therapy which in an odd way there is although not what she thinks it is another clever thing in this episode i think is that for the most part up to this point uh melfi has been sort of a spiritual guiding character she's in this Greek chorus, if you will, of the therapy room. Last episode, we got to know a little bit more about her, but she's guiding us through these complex dark nights of the soul and that sort of thing. In this episode, she's in one scene and it's pure plot. Melfi, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I I got the same fucking stupid flu that Carmela does. Um, I'm a woman and 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 that's another thing that it sets Carmela off. And Carmela's already in a vulnerable position being sick and not feeling well. And that sort of thing. So it's another. It's a great little plot device. And it's really amazing that Tony was able to kill Febby with Carmela's pencil up his ass. It's uh, <laughs> a tribute to his gangsterism. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, last thing here. This. Um, let's talk about the the uh, the last scene here between uh, Tony and Carmela, which uh, the first time we see these two characters together in this episode after what they've both been through separately. And God, what a scene! This is. Of all the great sh- scenes in this episode, this one has to be my favorite, just because the payoff of all this is, uh, she just leaves him. She totally flips this on him. He thinks he's like, in the dominant position. Like the priest spent the night here. Are you fucking kidding me? Like what? What? And just and Carmela is so good. This is not the only example of this we'll see in this series. But Carmela is so good about t- taking Tony, pulling this rug out right out from Tony when he thinks he has the moral high ground for once. Any thoughts on that, that last scene? Tony is not good at using his wits to outfox women, <laughs> female characters in general. He does not have that same dominance because unlike with all of the men in his life, he can't just use brute force to beat them down like yeah. he does with everyone else. So he's forced to use his wits, and um, Carmela knows Tony really well, better than anyone else, and maybe other than Livia, and and she knows exactly which buttons to press to take control of a situation, and uh, Edie Falco's performance in that scene is just so so good, so dominating. Um, I am sad for their marriage. I am sad that they uh, live in a state where, you know, even just the simple truth that someone's psychiatrist is the wrong gender uh, will completely, uh, as, as you said, Paul, upset the apple cart of their relationship. But um, just that little glimpse tells us there has been such a history here of Tony cheating on her mm. or of her having to constantly live in suspicion and fear. If this was the age of the high internet, I suspect she would be constantly on like his browser history, <laughs> looking at what he's been looking at, where yeah. he's been. She has a, She has a reason to be suspicious. We we get more into this decision for Tony to have chosen Melfi in the next episode. In fact, that's a big thrust of what next episode is, is this de facto triangle between Melfi, Tony, and Carmela and what that's all about. So we'll save it for our review of Pax Soprana. But um, yeah, she just leaves him totally in the dust here. And I, I, I'm with you, Jordan. I feel for them because there is genuine love here. Um 
we see earlier in the episode the guilt that Carmela carries with her at all times and and that she understands very well the game she's gotten into and it is because of her love for Tony that she is still involved. I don't doubt for a second that as much as Carmela benefits from this marriage, I don't doubt for a second that there is genuine affection here that is getting lost in their history and, sure. you know, all that's going on. Just a personal thing. Uh, I get it on Tony's end, too, on uh, because... I don't know why, but there is something to that. The I like the gender of your therapist. I have been in and out of therapy various times in my life, and I have I I don't do as well with male therapists. I don't know why that is. That's a thing that's just like, like for me. Um, but all of my most successful and comfortable therapy interactions have always been with a woman. Um, I think yeah, and we'll get and we'll be able to dig into that. Um, when we talk about the next episode, um, I think that the last scene for me is definitely big um, for a couple of reasons. One is that this is really the first episode where Carmela hasn't been reactive. Mm. She's had her own. She has her own story. Um, it's away from Tony for a lot of it. Then it comes together at the end. Um, and uh, there's, as always, there's some funny bits. Um, the Monsignor jug headline kills me oh yeah what'd you do for 12 hours play name that pope that's a great one too um yeah and again i mean i think that this is an episode about this struggle between people wanting to hear your confession and possibly even coercing it out of you and people wanting you to shut the hell up and tony's like chasing after carmella she doesn't want to hear it and there's this eerie silence with this long shot Mm. of the hallway that again reminds me of the old 70s movies like a shot with Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver on the phone and it pans over shows the empty hallway um, and then Gold Leaves this musical mm. selection that plays us out that maybe is about the fall in Maine but there's no lyrics mm. no lyrics we don't want to hear any more confessions nothing mm. very good any final thoughts guys I think we've we've gotten to a lot of the heart of what this episode is but I know there's like you said Jordan we could really do a four hour. We could do another dive. episode on. Yeah, we could alone, do. We, yeah. we could do another whole hour on this one. But if there's any th- other important ideas, comments, scenes, characters, sure. Two things for me. One is this um, great moment from Carmela where she she does confess to Father Phil and she says, you know, I've I've forsaken what is right for what is easy, uh, allowing evil into my house. I wanted a better life for my children. I wanted money in my hands. I wanted this house. Um, my husband, I think he's committed horrible acts. Mm. It's just a matter of time before God compensates me with outrage for my sins. And that is the transition that leads into the murder of Febby Petrullio. Um, Carmela is a really insightful character, and she's a really guilty character. She feels shame. She feels guilt in a way that is more keen than how Tony feels it. And she is able to read the telegraph of what is coming much more than he is able to, but... Tony does still feel that judgment, even though his is at a more symbolic level with, at least to him, apparently lower stakes right now. The other thing I want to look at is the title of this episode. The title of the episode is College. Just on the surface, I am taking my daughter to college. Yes, the gangster takes his daughter to college. It would be a, a great uh, Raymond Chandler short story noir, right? Yeah. Um, but it's it's a little bit more than that. It also is, it touches on Tony's own education mm. in terms of, you know, he admits to Meadow, look, my, my father and my mother, my parents were working class people. They didn't put an emphasis on, on education. I had a semester and a half at Seton Hall. Uh, he couldn't cut it, ultimately. 
but yet he is always still drawn to philosophy, to art, to literature. It's like these things are still going to be pulling you and uh, forcing you to have some level of, of introspection regardless. So even though Tony is in America's vacation land doing some gangster shit, God is watching, Nathaniel Hawthorne is watching, the halls of these institutions are watching. Uh, there is this, this sense of judgment that is here. So it's not just toothless confession and the truth that are threats in this episode. There is an external uh, deus threat to Tony's well-being that is kind of waiting for him, and it's waiting for him in the halls of these institutions of higher learning. It's waiting for him in the sky. Mm. God, that's so amazing. We're going to come back to that. Uh, I, I'm going to mark this, that specific line of thought. Um, I'm thinking of several moments much, I mean, and I mean much later in the series. Sure. The I mean, series, Endgame honestly, series. The series starts on it. Yeah. It starts with him in that waiting room looking at the statue of what I think many people refer to as the goddess mm. and his being perplexed at what this thing is. And Tony's relationship with art, literature, higher pursuits, college, philosophy, religion, all these things, these are the things that damn him ultimately. Mm. God. I feel for him. He would have had a very different life probably if he was able to hack it in college because he is a smart guy. He's not a dummy. He just didn't happen for him. But... Uh, and it's it's sad thinking of Tony at the same age Meadow was and what different circumstances they're both in. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Paul, any last thoughts on college? Uh, I can't do much better than what was just said. I think that and the this concept of Tony's ongoing education is powerful. I also thought that colleges and the Catholic Church are both these old institutions. And it made me think of actually talking about our first episode with the American iconography of the gangster existing outside institutions. And both of these institutions becoming kind of musty and old in this dark and ambivalent universe um, that we live in. Um, so that was something that ju- it just brought it up for me. Another thing that I want to note, um, s- what Jordan was talking about with Carmela's confession, how brilliantly these are intercut. She says at the end of it, it's only a matter of time before God compensates me with outrage for my sins. As it happens, there's a script book with a few scripts from The Sopranos. One of them is college. Mm-hmm. And at that point, in the way it's written, it cuts to Tony and Meadow at the hotel, going into the. He's squiring her into the room because she had too much to drink, and then Febby comes out of his car with the gun. In the episode, what Alan Coulter does is better. She says that line, and it doesn't cut to the two of them. It cuts to Febby pulling this big ass gun out from under his car seat, which he then points at Tony and Meadow. So the thing I want to mention there is that we're dealing with a show where writing is spot on, acting is spot on, and the direction and production value brings it all together um, to really, I think, make it sparkle. Yeah. What I love about this, uh, this kind of threesome here, guys, and the way we both thought about this episode is, and the way we all kind of thought this out is we're, we're, we're kind of, I think we all... As is the case when you watch something a bunch of times over and over over the years, College is an episode we probably have all have seen maybe more than mo- more than many of the episodes of The Sopranos. Is that you just get different things out of it each time, and I love the philosophical and thematic breakdown that um, you were giving Jordan, and I love the uh, f- you know like me, I was focused so much on the cinematic elements, the the cuts, the 
the the shadows, the lights, the you know those scenes with Chris uh, at the phone booth and the imagery. There's just so much to pull from, guys, and uh, you, you all did a great job on this one. I I love college. It's a great episode. Um, as a personal favorite, we were talking. It maybe doesn't make my top five, but I can see why James Gandolfini thought it was the best, and I can understand that. In in, in a way, this could have just as easily been the pilot. And there is mastery at all levels of this, from you know costumes to editing to the way it's shot, the way it's written. Um, there's no, there's no. It's just expertise at top level across the board with this one. There's a reason it's a classic. Guys, I want to thank you all for joining us. This was the Sopranos Podcast. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hughes. And we will see you next time for Pax Soprano. Oh